Welcome to the first lecture on Beowulf. We'll be covering up through line 1650 today. Uh, next time we'll be covering the rest of the poem. Uh, I'd like to begin by drawing your attention to some handouts that I have for, to help you with Beowulf. Uh, they're on the website under handouts. Uh, the first one is Old English Verse. Uh, and this goes over some of the details of what Old English verse was like. Again, it was a uh, four-beat line uh, with a pause or cesura in the middle and uh, the beats alliterated uh, under a special pattern. Uh, the, there would be two or three alliterating syllables per line, usually. Uh, you can read over that, and I give you an example in modern English and scan that for you to show you how uh, Old English alliterative verse works. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're not going to be reading the Old English verse. Uh, we're going to be reading Beowulf in a modern translation, and uh, they don't use the kind of strict alliterative verse form that Old English did. It's difficult to do in modern English. Uh, but I wanted to have that there for you so you can get a sense of kind of the music and the rhythm of the original Old English text. The next handout is a pronunciation guide for Beowulf. Uh, some of the, we're, we're not reading this in Old English, but the, the names are all Old English, uh, and it may help you to know how those were pronounced. Uh, it, it's often said that you shouldn't uh, make fun of somebody for mispronouncing a word. It means that they read a lot, that they've encountered that word by reading and never heard it. It means they're, they're, they're good readers. Uh, but still, I like to kind of have in my mind's ear what the correct pronunciations of the names are. Uh, I won't always pronounce the names correctly, but uh, uh, this will give you some, some sense of how it will sound. Now the third uh, handout that I have is for the opening lines of Beowulf, and I'd like you to open that up because we're going to look at these first lines of Beowulf. Uh, I've given you two different translations, uh, one that's in the Norton Anthology by Seamus Haney, and the other, uh, our recommended text, is John McNamara's version. Now below that, you'll see the original Old English text and a very close, almost word-for-word -word translation of that. Uh, this is from uh, uh, R.M. Luza's translation of the poem in his introduction. Uh, the first thing I'd like to do is give you a sense of how Beowulf sounded in Old English. So let's listen to this. What? Weigardena in Yirdagum, Theod Kininga, Thrim Yafrunan, Hutha Athlingas, Ellen Fremadan. Off shield shaping, Shiavana Thriatum, Monigum Mayathum, Miedo Settler of Tech, Egg so the Erla Sithan Erest Werth, Fiasiaft Funden, Hithas Frofra Yabed, Welks under Wolknem, Werth Mundum Thach. Othat him ai huilich um sitendra, over ron rada, huran shoulder, gomban guldan. That was God kinning. That was Michael Drought's recitation of the opening 11 lines of Beowulf and gives you a good sense of what the, the language sounded like. Uh, now, let's look at the 
very literal translation. The, the words here in italics aren't in the text, but they're implied by the, uh, the, the grammatical endings of the, of the words. So it would be something like, What we of the Spear Danes in days of yore, of the people kings, glory heard, how the noblemen valor did. Often, Shield, son of Shaf, from enemies' troops from many tribes, mead benches took away, terrified nobles. After first he was destitute found, he, for that comfort awaited, grew under the skies in honor prospered until to him each of the surrounding ones over the whale riding obey had to tribute yield. That was a good king. Uh, that's obviously not idiomatic English. Uh, let's look at the two translations that we have. First of all, Seamus Haney. And this, the first three lines, Haney has, So, the Spear Danes, in days gone by, and the kings who ruled them, had courage and greatness. We have heard of those princes' heroic campaigns. Now, look how McNamara translates that. Hail, we have heard tales sung of the Spear Danes, the glory of their war kings in days gone by, how princely nobles performed heroes' deeds. Now, in both of these cases, we're, we're getting, you know, rough at, at a uh, large level, we're getting the same basic meaning, uh, but they're very interesting differences in the specifics of how they translate this. Start with the first word. Uh, in Old English, it's hoat, uh, which is the origin of the modern word what. Uh, but it's an interjection, and interjections are hard to translate. What does hey mean? Well, it depends on the context. It's not a word that you can look up in the dictionary and really understand how it's used. That's what what was like. Uh, it seems to be an, it's an attention getter. It's a, hey, listen to me, I've got something to say. Uh, McNamara uses the word hail, and that has a, kind of an appropriately uh, archaic feeling to it. Uh, James Haney is a much more uh, colloquial word. He just says, so. And we do that in, in English today. Use the word, some speakers do, uh, use the word so to kind of introduce what they're going to say. You come and you say, so, let me tell you about this. Again, those are different ways of, of translating it. They have different connotations. Notice, too, that the McNamara begins, we have heard, whereas we have heard doesn't occur until line three of Haney's translation. So they're moving things around. The word order and the syntax is different. And, in fact, Haney has a lot of, kind of shorter, simpler sentences. So he has the first Two lines are a sentence. The Spear Danes in days gone by, and the kings who ruled them had courage and greatness, period. We have heard of those princes who were campaigns, period. McNamara uses, a, uh, uses subordinate clauses. So he, he does, we have heard the tales sung of the Spear Danes, comma, the glory of their war kings in days gone by, 
comma, how princely nobles performed heroes' deeds. So lines two and three are kind of a positive two. They're commenting on or expanding what happens in line one. That's a different syntactical arrangement. Uh, all of these have, you know, one may be easier to understand or harder to understand. They have a different tone, a different feeling, uh, may feel more formal or more colloquial. All of those kind of nuances of the, the translation. Uh, word choice is another thing that distinguishes them. Uh, Haney says the kings who ruled them. Uh, McNamara says they're war kings. All right, well, kings is different from war kings, all right? War kings is obviously emphasizing the, the, the war part. Uh, they were kings because they fought battles. Um, or Haney says, we've heard of those princes' heroic campaigns. McNamara says the princes, the princely nobles performed heroes' deeds. Okay, heroic campaigns and heroes' deeds, again, have some slightly different connotations. Uh, campaign is a very military, martial word. You go, you have a military campaign. Heroes' deeds sounds more mythic, uh, like they're going on a great quest, right? So all of those, you know, give a, a slightly different spin on the uh, interpretation that you get through the translations. Uh, look at the, the next few lines. Uh, Haney says, There was Shield Sheafson, scourge of many tribes, a wrecker of mead benches, rampaging among foes. Whereas McNamara's translation says, Oft Shield Shaving captured the mead halls from many peoples, from troops of enemies, terrifying their chieftains. Again, McNamara tends to have longer sentences with more subordinate clauses in them, right? Uh, but look at, again, the vocabulary. Uh, first of all, just the decision to translate the name shield shaving. Uh, Haney gives a, a, a modern English version of it, shield sheaf sun, right? Again, that feels different. That feels more accessible in some way to a modern reader. And think of the word scourge. In Haney's translation, it doesn't. There's no equivalent of that in McNamara or really in the original text. A scourge is literally a whip, but it can mean someone who you know rains down terror on people, makes uh, shield chiefson sound uh, much more intimidating. Uh, and look at the way it describes what he does. He's a wrecker of mead benches, rampaging among foes. For McNamara. He captured the mead halls from many peoples, from troops of enemies. Okay? Uh, mead halls and mead benches, different word choices. Mead, that's fermented honey, that's what they tended to drink. Uh, the, the mead hall was where they, the, they got together and, and drank. Now, uh, Haney says mead benches which is much closer to the original Old English text. It's kind of a, a poetic way of saying that, where the, the benches were in the halls where they drank. It's, got, it's talking about the same thing, but in a different way. It gives you a different mental image in the two, in, in each case. And wrecker of mead benches is very different from captured the mead halls. Wrecker uh, is much 
uh, harsher, uh, much more violent. Captured uh, is a milder term than wrecked, obviously. Um, let's go on. Haney has this terror of the whole troops had come far. A foundling to start with, he would flourish later on as his powers waxed and his worth was proved. McNamara translates that. Though he was first a poor foundling, he lived to find comfort. Under heavens, he flourished with honors fulfilled. Now here, uh, just think about the, the phrase under heavens. That's in the original Old English. Uh, it grew under the skies, or literally under the clouds in, in Old English. Uh, McNamara has translated that under heavens. That gives a, a religious connotation to that, you know, almost as if God has ordained this. There's no hint of that in Haney's translation, right? It says, and his power, as his powers waxed and his worth was proved. Um, waxed picks up on the Anglo-Saxon whelks, uh, very nicely, but it loses the idea of under the skies, under heaven, right? Again, making different choices. As his power waxed and his worth was proved, uh, puts all of the uh, focus on shield. Whereas under heavens he flourished, uh, that suggests that he had some kind of heavenly blessing, that it wasn't just him. It was, it was uh, God who blessed him. Uh, again, those are all very subtle differences in how they're rendering the text. Let's look at the, the ending of the, this section. Haney renders it, In the end, each clan on the outlying coasts beyond the whale road had to yield to him and begin to pay tribute. That was one good king. McNamara says, Till each neighboring nation, those over the whale road, bowed under his rule, paid the price of tribute. That was a good king. All right, first thing I want to do is look at the, the, the Kinning whale road. Uh, as I've mentioned before, Kinning is a, a two-word compressed metaphor. It's almost like a little riddle. Uh, tree hugger is a modern example. Uh, whale road means the sea, uh, and the original Anglo-Saxon is Hronrada. Uh, now, Rada doesn't actually mean road, it means riding. Uh, you'll notice that Luza, in his literal translation, gives whale riding. And that's probably closer to the original, uh, not the idea of a, the sea as a road, but as a place where whales ride. Again, that's very subtle, but it's a different image. Uh, whale riding is more active, uh, more vivid in some ways. Uh, look, too, at how they translate the very simple final half line. That was one good king. That was a good king. Uh, I think that Haney does well at getting the tone of that. Uh, that was one good king. It's kind of an understatement that he's saying. He's saying all these wonderful things about him and then says, yeah, not a bad king. Um, whereas McNamara has the exclamation point, it sounds more like cheerleading. That was a good king. 
So the tone uh, is different, just, uh, you know, having literally one word, one, uh, and changing the punctuation changes the tone and the implications of the lines. Uh, Now, your first essay for the class is going to be comparing translations of Beowulf. So I wanted to go over these different translations of Beowulf to give you a sense of how you can look at the details and see pick out differences and different implications between two translations. But now, let's step back and just look at the poem. At the, introducing our first character is Shield Sheafson. Uh, and think about why the poem starts with Sheafson. One reason is that uh, Sheafson is the great-grandfather of Hrothgar, and Hrothgar is one of the main characters in our story. Uh, Sheafson's son was Beo, Beo's son was Halfdane, and Halfdane's son was Hrothgar. Uh, so it's establishing the genealogy. Now, Shield Sheafson was a legendary figure. He's a mythic figure. Hrothgar was a real historical person. So one thing that this is doing is it's kind of establishing a continuity between the mythic uh, folktale world and the real historical world of the poem, kind of blending those two together. But if it was just about a genealogy, you could just mention Shield Chiefson and give the genealogy. But it goes into the whole story about it. Well, what's it doing there? Part of what it's doing is establishing Chiefson as a good king. That's how that first section ends. That was a good king. Well, what makes him a good king? Well, he's a good king because he's a great warrior. He went among the, the mead benches, rampaging among foes. And, uh, he, was, uh, he came from uh, humble beginnings and uh, became a great king. Uh, that's what makes him a good king. And we find out he had a son who was a blessing to him. Uh, notice it says that uh, line 15, 16, that the the Lord of life, the glorious Almighty, made this man renowned. Uh, So here we have the first religious reference in the poem. Uh, And you'll notice that when it talks about gods, it talks generally about capital G, God. Uh, We don't hear any mention of Thor or Odin or Loki or any of the Norse gods who presumably uh, these people would have uh, worshipped. Remember, this was written by a, uh, or transcribed by a a monk in the year 1000. So I think you see his kind of religious filter on the poem. Now look at what uh, his son, Bayo, does. Uh, Line 20 says, A young prince must be prudent like that giving freely while his father lives, so that afterward, in age, when fighting starts, steadfast companions will stand by him and hold the line. So it's saying that uh, Bayo was very generous, he gave gifts, and that's a smart thing to do, because when his father dies, if somebody's going to try to get the kingdom back from him, he'll have friends that he's given gifts to who will stand by him. Um, and uh, it says, behavior that's admired is the path to power among people everywhere. Right? It's kind of saying, and this, and this happens a lot too, the narrator kind of steps back and gives a, a moral judgment on something. 
So it, it tells us what Bayo did, and then it says that was the, that's a smart thing to do. That's the that's the way that uh, you get ahead in any any situation. Uh, now notice that over half of this introduction about Shield uh, Chiefson, his life story, over half of it is his death and funeral. I think that's very significant. Uh, it, it says that you know when when he died, he had this. Uh, Viking funeral. Uh, they they uh, stretched their beloved lord in his boat, laid out by the uh, mast amidships, the great the ring giver. Uh, so they put him in a boat, they put his treasures around him, and they set it on fire and push it out to sea. That's uh, a good Viking funeral. But why did they... Why, do you, why spend so much time on that? I mean, you, you, why not spend time telling us about all these battles? Well, from the very beginning, the poem Beowulf is about death. And Shield Chiefson's death is important because it shows the tri a tribute to his life. Uh, he had this wonderful funeral because he had been a good king. That's what you leave behind. And we'll see when we get to the end of the Beowulf, it ends with another funeral, and it will echo the funeral that we have at the beginning. So we get the, the genealogy, we get to Hrothgar, and Hrothgar is going to build a, a great mead hall, Heorot. Um, but, and notice when they talk about the, the building of Heorot, uh, let's see, around line 80, it says, nor did he renege, but doled out rings and torques at the table. The hall towered, its gables wide and high, awaiting a barbarous burning. That doom abided, but in time it would come. The killer instinct unleashed among in-laws, the bloodlust rampant. Now what it's talking about there, and the footnote will help you out with this, uh, is eventually Herat is going to be burned, and it's going to be burned because of uh, uh, feuds and infighting in the in the family. Uh, that's an interesting thing to put at this point, right? We're talking about all the glory of how Herat was built and how wonderful it is, but the the very moment we say that, we remind the audience that yes, but it's all going to be burned to the ground, and it's going to end in tragedy. It's like Shield Chiefson, right? We tell about how glorious he was, but we remind you we end with his funeral, with his death. Uh, death is kind of looming behind Beowulf almost from the very beginning of the poem. Now, another tragedy happens very quickly because Grindel comes and attacks Heorot. And look at the way that Grindel is described um, they say around line 102, Grindel was the name of this grim demon, haunting the marshes, marauding round the heath and the desolate fens. He had dwelt for a time in misery among the banished monsters, Cain's clan, whom the creator had outlawed and condemned as outcasts. For the killing of Abel the Eternal Lord had exacted a price. Cain got no good from committing that murder, because the Almighty made him anathema, and out of the curse of his exile there sprung 
ogres and elves and evil phantasms and the giants too who strove with God time and again until he gave them their reward. All right, so Grindel is linked. He doesn't give a physical description. We get a few physical details about Grindel. Uh, and we know he's some he's kind of an ogre, gigantic, human-shaped monster. Uh, but he doesn't dwell on the physical description. He talks about his genealogy. Genealogies are very important in this culture. And his ultimate genealogy is to Cain, the first murderer. All right? Well, again, that's very interesting. That, again, sets it in a biblical context. Uh, there are references to the Bible in Beowulf, but they're all to the Old Testament, like this, like Cain. Later they talk about the, the, the great flood. Um, so he's, he's cursed, he's outcast, and he's outcast for kinslaying, for murdering his brother. And so Grindel is kind of the embodiment or the descendant of that sinful nature. Right? Well, we hear a lot about feuding and kinslaying in Beowulf. Uh, the, the, the warriors seem to do that a lot. We hear a lot of stories about that that crop up again and again. So, in a way, Grindel is an embodiment of that element of their culture. He is almost pure violence. Notice that there's really not a lot of motive for why Grindel does this. They say that he hears them singing in the hall, and that upsets him, and then he goes and kills them. Um, that that's Really, that's it. He didn't like the music. He's a music critic, and that's why he kills people for 12 years. Um, it, it's very light on the motive. Now, Grindel's mother uh, and the, the the dragon in the second, in the end of the poem, um, have very clear and very understandable motives. Grindel seems to just be pure violence for violence' sake. Um, and again, this goes on, they say, for, for uh, 12 years, this feud. And uh, look at the way they describe it around line 153. His long and unrelenting feud, nothing but war, how he would never parley or make peace with any Dane, nor stop his death-dealing, nor pay the death price. All right. Now, paying the death price, that's the uh, Anglo-Saxon word, wergild. Um, that was what would happen if you killed somebody, uh, his relatives might you know, take vengeance on you and kill you. So to prevent that, in a cycle of his relatives killing you and then your relatives killing him and then their relatives killing you, your relatives, uh, they developed the idea of the wergild that you would pay uh, money for having killed the man, and that would so honor would be settled. Well, there's no there's no where guild that you can pay Grindel. Grindel doesn't follow the rules of, of the proper uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon society, uh, the the Danish rules. Um, you can't buy him off. It's just this continual feud and violence, and there's no end to it except more violence. Um, now, notice that for some of the, the, the Danes, their reaction to this is to, uh, well, look on page online 175. 
Sometimes at pagan shrines they vowed offerings to idols, swore oaths that the killer of souls might come to their aid and save the people. That was their way, their heathenish hope. Deep in their hearts they remembered hell. The Almighty Judge of good deeds and bad, the Lord God, head of the heavens and high king of the world, was unknown to them. So this is an indication that the, uh, at least some of the, the Danes are heathen. They're not worshiping God. They're looking for. The, they're looking to the uh, uh, the killer of souls. They're looking to Satan. Uh, but it suggests that they're turning to this in desperation because there's no one that can protect them from Grendel. Uh, now, the one who does protect them from Grendel ultimately is Beowulf, and he's introduced around line 194. Uh, his name isn't given for quite a while. Again, the original audience would have known this was a poem about Beowulf, so you don't have to mention him. Um, notice it says about him, line 196, There was no one else like him alive in his day. He was the mightiest man on earth, high-born and powerful. Right? So the first thing we know about Beowulf is his mightiness. His strength, he's kind of a superhero strong. And he gets together a group of the of the Geats, and they're going to sail to uh, uh, to Denmark to visit uh, uh, Herat and kill the monster for Hrothgar. Uh, when they get there, you notice there's a, uh, a, a coast guard who meets them and is impressed by them, but wants to make sure they're not there to cause trouble. But he takes them ultimately to meet uh, uh, Hrothgar, and he tells them, you know, I'm, I'm here to kill your monster. Um, look at what uh, Beowulf says around line 443. Says, if Grindel wins, it will be a gruesome day. He will glut himself on the Geats in the war hall, swoop without fear on the flower of manhood, as on others before. Then my face won't be there to be covered in death. He will carry me away as he goes to ground, gorged and bloodied. He will run gloating with my raw corpse and feed on it alone, in a cruel frenzy, fouling his moor nest. No need then to lament for long or lay out my body if the battle takes me. Send back this breast-webbing that Wayland fashioned and Hrethel gave me to Lord Helak. Fate goes ever as fate must. Now, notice that Beowulf is imagining in very gruesome detail what it will be like if he doesn't win. I mean, he's going to be taken away and eaten by Grindel. Uh, and his reaction to that is fate goes ever as fate must. Uh, the the uh, Anglo-Saxon word for fate is weird, W-Y-R-D, weird, uh, fate. And he says, well, if, that's, if it's going to be that way, it's going to be that way. Now, uh, Beowulf uh, has announced his intentions. He's going to kill Grendel, and they have a feast for him in Herat before he goes to his possible doom. And at this feast, we meet another character, Unferth. Uh, Unferth means unpeace. 
he, he's, he's a, a, a troublemaker. That's uh, almost literally what his ma- name means. And he asks Beowulf about something. He says, line 306, Are you the Beowulf who took on Breca in a swimming match on the open sea, risking the water just to prove that you could win? It was sheer vanity made you venture out on the main deep. I think, are you the one who had that crazy swimming contest with Breca? That was foolish. And worse, it says, then he outswam you. Um, it says, uh, uh, so look at line uh, 525. No matter, therefore, how you may have fared in every bout in battle until now, this time you'll be worsted. No one has ever outlasted an entire night against Grindel. So Unferth is saying, you're the guy who did that swimming contest with Breca that was foolish and that you didn't even win. There's no way you're going to be able to beat Grendel. Well, Beowulf replies to this. He says, line 530, Well, friend Unferth, you have had your say about Breca and me, but it was mostly beer that was doing the talking. The truth is this. When the going was heavy in those high waves, I was the strongest swimmer of all. So notice what he says, you know, friend Unferth, he's not being friendly. Uh, and he says, you know, you, you, you've had a few too many to drink. You're not, you know, let, let me tell you the truth about what happened. He says, the truth is, I was the strongest swimmer. And so he tells this story that they had this, this swimming contest, uh, and neither of them could win until they were attacked by these ocean monsters. And Beowulf attacked them. Uh, Breca was able to swim to safety, but uh, Beowulf, with his sword, killed them. Um, and look at how he, he sums this up at the, at the end. Um, line 567. It says, From now on, sailors would be safe. The deep sea raids were over for good. Light came from the east, bright guarantee of God, and the waves were, went quiet. I could see headlands and buffeted cliffs. Often, for undaunted courage, fate spares the man it has not already marked. Uh, Now, he's saying he had this moment of victory, the sun came up and everything, but that last phrase, that last sentence, often for undaunted courage, fate spares the man it has not already marked. And that's an interesting idea. It's an idea that fate isn't absolute, right? Uh, Fate, or weird, may spare you if you're brave enough, if you're courageous enough. Uh, And he says he was. He was brave. He was courageous. He killed these nine sea monsters. And so fate spared him where it might have killed him there. Um, He also brings up that uh, Unferth is a a kinslayer. He says, you killed your own kith and kin. Um, and line, line uh, 590, the fact is, Unferth, if you were truly so keen or courageous as you claim to be, Grindel would never have gotten away with such unchecked atrocity. He's saying, really, you know, if, if you were so great, why is Grindel still a problem? Why haven't you killed him? Well, this kind of 
shuts up uh, uh, Unferth for the moment. Um, now in the next section we get to the, the fight with Grendel. Um, and look at line uh, 669. It says, And that Giet placed complete trust in his strength of limb and the Lord's favor. Now look at the, the dichotomy there. He has complete trust in his strength of limb and the Lord's favor. Well, those are two different things. They may be related, but they're different. He has faith in his own strength. He has faith in God's help, the Lord's favor. Um, and how are those two related? Again, it's like he said, fate spares an undoomed man if his, if his courage is good. Uh, so you need both. You need, you need fate and you need uh, strength and courage. Um, now, Beowulf decides to fight Grendel without any weapons or armor. And the reason he does that, his uh, uh, rationale for that, is that Grindel doesn't use any weapons or armor. So he's being kind of chivalrous in a way. Um, and he says, when it comes to fighting, I count myself as dangerous as any, any day as Grindel. So it won't be a cutting edge I'll wield to mow him down, easily as I might. He has no idea of the arts of war, shield, or sword play, although he does possess a wild strength. No weapons, therefore, for either this night. Unarmed, he shall face me, if face me he dares. And may the Divine Lord in his wisdom grant the glory of a victory to whichever side he sees fit. So he wants it to be a fair contest. Uh, you're not going to use a sword. Now, so the uh, Beowulf and his fellow Gats uh, set in for the night. And notice line 691. None of them expected he would ever see his homeland again or get back to his native place and the people who reared him. That's a, a kind of a surprising statement. These very heroic uh, uh Gats, uh, warriors, are coming here, but none of them think that they're going to survive. They're, they're doing this because they think it's their duty, maybe, because they think they ought to, but they don't have a lot of hope in victory. Now, Grindel comes in, um, and off the moors, down through the mist bands, God-cursed Grindel came, greedily loping. Um, he knocks the doors in. There's a, a baleful light in his eyes. Flame more than light flared from his eyes. Um, and the first thing he does is he grabs one of the, the, the gats. He Line uh, 740. He grabbed and mauled a man on his bench, bit into his bone lappings, bolted down his blood, and gorged on him in lumps, leaving the body utterly lifeless, eaten up, hand and foot, right? So we've kind of clearly established, if we hadn't already, that this is a very dangerous monster. Um, then Beowulf steps forward. Uh, line 750, the captain of evil discovered himself in a hand grip harder than anything he had ever encountered in any man on the face of the earth. Um, 
line 761, the dread of land was desperate to escape, to take a roundabout road and flee to his lair in the fens. The latching power in his fingers weakened. It was the worst trip the terror-monger had taken to Herat. And now the timbers trembled and sang a hall session that harrowed every Dane inside the stockade. Stumbling in fury, the two contenders crashed through the building. The hall clattered and hammered, but somehow survived the onslaught and kept standing. So there's this epic battle, and the main thrust of it is that Beowulf won't let go. He grabs hold of Grendel, and Grendel can't get loose. Um, and the other, the, the soldiers try to attack Grendel while he's wrestling with, uh, with Beowulf. But look around line 800. It says, when they joined the struggle, there was something they could not have known at the time that no blade on earth, no blacksmith's art, could ever damage their demon opponent. He had conjured the harm from the cutting edge of every weapon. So it turns out that no sword could hurt Grendel. He's immune to that. There's a magic spell on him. Um, so Grindel and Beowulf are fighting. Uh, line 815. The monster's whole body was in pain. A tremendous wound appeared on his shoulder. Sinew split and the bone lappings burst. Beowulf was granted the glory of winning. Grindel was driven under the fin banks fatally hurt to his desolate lair. Uh, and around line 832, clear proof of this could be seen in the hand the uh, hero displayed high up near the roof, the whole of Grendel's shoulder and arm, his awesome grasp. So Grendel is trying to get away. Beowulf won't let him. And eventually Beowulf rips, or Grendel rips away and has his arm ripped off because Beowulf won't let go. Uh, so it's a mortal wound to him. Now, the next section is the uh, celebration at Heorot. Uh, and I'm not going to have a lot to say about that. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in it, particularly the kind of background stories it tells. It, it tells talks about uh, Sigmund and Hermod and the, the, the saga of Finn. And these are all kind of give an extra resonance to the story. Uh, they're told often in very elliptical ways in Beowulf uh, because the original audience was expected to already know them. So it's, it's, it's kind of off-putting to a modern reader until you kind of do the scholarship to learn about them. Uh, but the point is that uh, I, I would make is that Beowulf is put in context with these other great heroes. Siegmund was a dragon slayer, and, he's and Beowulf is compared to Siegmund. Well, it turned out later in his life, Beowulf too will be a dragon slayer. Uh, but I want to get ahead to Grindel's mother. Uh, she comes in the, in the next section. Um, and this is line 1276. But now his mother had sallied forth on a savage journey, grief-wracked and ravenous, desperate for revenge. Uh, now, 
Grindel's mother has a very clear motivation for why she goes in and kills someone. She's avenging her son. Uh, again, this is an aspect of the, uh, the Nordic culture that this poem is set in. Uh, this is something that the, 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 the Danes and the Gats and the, the Swedes all would, would do and would understand. Uh, they killed one of yours, you kill one of theirs. Uh, so again, the monsters are in some ways uh, mirroring the darker elements of the society that they're attacking. Um, so she comes in, she grabs the Grindel's bloodied hand, she brings back this, and she kills uh, Asherah, uh, who was the, the favored counselor of Hrothgar. Um, and they even talk about it in terms of the feud. Line uh, 1333, she has taken up the feud because of last night when you killed Grindel. That's why this is happening. And it turns out they know kind of where she lives. She lives in a mere or a lake uh, where the water burns. Uh, so that would that's where you're going to have to go and hunt her, hunt her down. Um, and again, Beowulf accepts the challenge. I mean, he's he's the reason he killed Grindel. That's the reason that Grindel's mother is here. So he accepts it as his duty to go and find her. Notice that Beowulf addresses Hrothgar, uh, and Hrothgar has been is grieving for his his dead friend, uh, and he tells him, line thirteen eighty four, "Why, sir, do not grieve." It is always better to avenge dear ones than to indulge in mourning. For every one of us living in this world means waiting for our end. Let whoever can win glory before death. When a warrior is gone, that will be his best and only bulwark. So arise, my lord, and let us immediately set forth on the trail of this troll dam. Now notice the, the values that Beowulf is uh, presenting here. And he says, all this grieving is fine, but what you need to do, what would be better to do, is to get revenge. And the reason for that, and he says, all of us are going to die. And that fact means that we have to win glory while we're alive. Now, that doesn't sound like a particularly Christian set of values. And some, uh, the narrator of Beowulf often makes references to Christian values. But Beowulf very clearly has these Nordic Viking warrior values. Uh, I, I'm going to go avenge uh, Asherah uh, because that will win glory. Uh, now, they take him to the, uh, the lake where Grindel's mother lives. And in fact, Unferth goes with him, and Unferth gives Beowulf a, a sword to help him. So they're they're kind of that's uh, they're kind of making up a little bit. He, he's not as skeptical as he was last time. He's seen what uh, Beowulf can do. So Beowulf dives into the lake. This is uh, line fourteen ninety four. Uh, he dived into the heaving depths of the lake. It was the best part of a day before he could see the solid bottom, so he can obviously hold his breath a long time. Uh, but underwater, Grindel's mother catches him and pulls him into her 
lair, uh, around line 15, 12, the gallant man could see he had entered some hellish turnhole, and yet the water there did not work against him, because the hall roofing held off. So it's it's not really clear. This is some kind of cave that's not underwater or behind a waterfall or something. Um, so we have the great fight with Grindel's mother, uh, and he attacks her with his sword. It says, but he soon found his battle torch, that is his sword, another kinning, extinguished. The shining blade refused to bite. It spared her and failed the man in his need. So he tries to use a sword against his sword, against actually it's Unferth's sword, against Grendel's mother, but it's not effective. Uh, line fifteen thirty. Then in a fury he flung his sword away. The keen inline inlaid warm looped patterned steel was hurled to the ground. He would have to rely on the might of his arms. So must a man do who intends to gain enduring glory in combat. Uh, life doesn't cost him a thought. Then the war, the prince of Wargates, warming to the, this fight with Grindel's mother, gripped her shoulder and laid about him in a battle frenzy. He pitched his killer opponent to the floor, but she rose quickly and retaliated, grappled him tightly in her grim embrace. The sure-footed fighter felt daunted. The strongest of warriors stumbled and fell, so she pounced upon him and pulled out a broad, wetted knife. Now she would avenge her only child. Again, uh, she has a very specific motive. It's vengeance. She wants uh, uh, payback for her son. But the mesh of chain mail on Beowulf's shoulder shielded his life, turned the edge and tip of the blade. So now notice that it's reversed. Now, before, Grindel was a monster who couldn't be, and even Grindel's mother, were monsters who couldn't be hurt by the sword. Now, Grindel himself is saved from a, a blade weapon by the chain mail that he's wearing. Uh, the son of Edgethale would have surely perished, and the Geats lost their warrior under the wide earth, had the strong links and locks of war, his war gear not helped to save him. Holy God decided the victory. Again, there's this dichotomy. It's his chainmail that saves him. It's God who saves him. It's both of them. Uh, it's kind of uh, overlapping a uh, 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 heroic Nordic idea and a, a Christian fatalist idea. Uh, then he sees a sword. He sees a sword in her armory, an ancient heirloom from the days of the giants, an ideal weapon. Uh, so he sees this this sword uh, and says, uh, he took a firm hold of the hilt and swung the blade in an arc, a resolute blow that bit deep into her neck bone and severed it entirely. Toppling the doomed house of her flesh, she fell to the floor. The sword dripped blood. The swordsman was elated. Um, so he kills her with this magical giant sword. Uh, again, it, 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 it's kind of providence. It's God's will, but it's also his his strength and his courage that uh, that accomplish his heroic deeds. 
Now, Grindel, uh, Grindel, Beowulf finds Grindel's dead body here in the cave. Uh, I remember Grindel had escaped, but he was mortally wounded. And he decides that he's going to take a trophy, right? He's going to, Beowulf cut up the corpse's head off, right? And look what happens to his sword when that happens, line 1605. The sword began to wilt into gory icicles to slather and thaw. It was a wonderful thing, the way it all melted as ice melts when the father eases the fetters off the frost and unravels the water ropes. Right? So it's, it's melting like ice. And the, the reason for that is uh, the, the blade had melted and the scroll work on it burned, so scalding was the blood of the poisonous fiend who had perished there. So uh, Grindel's blood is like acid. Uh, it, it eats through the sword, melts it away. Um, but he gets his, his trophy, and not just the arm of Grindel that he had before, but now his head, which he brings, brings back uh, to the, uh, to the uh, Danes. And they say it was a task for four, for four to hoist Grindel's head on a spear and bear it under strain to the bright hall. So it took four men to lift Grindel's head. Uh, all right, I'm going to stop there, and we'll pick up here next time and talk about the second half of Beowulf. Uh, I want to look at the, the celebration that they have for Beowulf. Uh, and think about, if, as you're reading that, what the stories that they tell and how they relate to, to Beowulf. Uh, what's going on kind of in the, in the background, not just the, the story itself, but the stories within the stories. Uh, also, Beowulf will go back and retell his story to his, uh, his father and his father's hall. Uh, notice how he retells it. Why, why have this retelling of the story? I mean, we've heard all this already. Why have Beowulf retell the whole thing? Uh, then the, the final section of the poem will be, it'll be 50 years later when Beowulf is king and he fights the dragon. And we'll be talking about the dragon and his role uh, as Beowulf's final uh, opponent. Uh, so again, if you have any questions, uh, remember you can always email me at drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Uh, thank you for your attention, and I will be talking to you later.